morning. Good morning. I am so glad you guys are here. Welcome to Winter 2.0. Good thing the sequel is not as good as the original uh, because it's supposed to be gone by later today. 85 degrees tomorrow. You know, there's a saying that if you don't like the weather in Iowa, just wait, it'll change. Man, is it taken literally this week. Um, so, so glad that you are here today. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Glad to be together here with you to worship, to sing the praises of the Lord, to speak of the goodness of our God in this time. Would you please join me in prayer? Lord God, I thank you for every good gift because every good gift comes from you. We wake up and we know that we are saved, we are cleansed, we are redeemed. If we are your children, if we've repented and put our faith in you, Lord God, all that you have is ours. How could we ever even think to envy, be greedy? But we do, because we have that old sinful nature that you've told us to put to death. So, God, before we even began our time of worship, in the altar of our heart, Lord God, we once again crucify everything in us that is not of you, for you bore it on the cross the first time. And, Lord God, we put all those things, we put them to the side, Lord God, because we know that you'll be dealing with them, all those concerns, and we want to focus on you, Lord, Next hour and a half, you and you alone, for you deserve the glory. You deserve the honor. You deserve the praise. So God, as, as we think about those things in our life, may uh, thanksgiving well up. May praise and worship well up. Nothing in our life, Lord God, is just meant for us to take, use, and discard, but it is to build up to praise and thanksgiving to the one who created oceans and atoms and nebula and stars in our own heart. We thank you, Jesus. Be honored and be praised in our midst today. In Jesus' name do I pray. Amen. Would you please stand? We've waited for this day. We've gathered in your name, calling out to you. Your glory like a fire, awaken our desire, we'll burn our hearts with truth. You're the reason we're here, you're the reason we're singing. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Your glory on our face, looking to the sky, descending like a cloud. You're standing with us now, Lord, unveil our eyes. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. Open up the heavens. We want to see you. A mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our praise. So open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our praise. 
your glory. Show us, show us your power. Show us, show us your glory, Lord. Hallelujah. 
important for us to remember to raise that hallelujah when everything in our mind everything in our soul says i have no reason to when the concerns of this life have choked out the joy of the lord how much more important in the middle of that storm to raise a hallelujah 
when the enemy is closing in, to raise a hallelujah, to remember once again, greater is he within me than he who is in the world. Handel, when he was writing the Messiah, sequestered himself to his room, didn't eat, didn't sleep for days, burst out once he finished the hallelujah course and said, I have seen the great God. We raise a hallelujah in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the best times, middle of the worst times, in every segment of our life, we raise a hallelujah. This is how I fight my battles. I do not meet aggression with aggression, hate with hate, but love. Where others look to sow hate, I sow love. Where others look to sow discord, I sow unity. I choose to do this because God is my avenger. Because God is the lifter of my head. And I find my life, my sufficiency, my worth in Him and Him alone. Lord, I pray over our church today, may we raise a hallelujah. In the middle of a crooked and depraved world, you've called us to shine like stars in the heavens. You've told us that the world will know that we are dear disciples for our love for one another. And this is the expression of that. We come here from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic strata, to worship you because we are under one king. Be blessed and glorified, Lord God, not just in our singing, but in our giving and our listening of your word. Do this for your own great name and for no other reason. For in Jesus' name do we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Ushers, if you prepare this morning's tithes and offerings... Just want to let everyone know who's interested in nursery. So if you're interested at all, whether you've served in the past or you want to serve in the future, please meet with uh, Sue Carney and Nicole Firstenell and Wendy Olmstead. Hopefully that's not a surprise to anybody I just named. Um, over in the nursery following this morning's service. Um, let me go ahead and pray over our offering. Then ushers, you can distribute that. Lord God, once again, I thank you for every good gift. For every good gift comes from you. Lord, the blessing in, in giving is not so much that you then bless us with money later down the road or anything like that, but there is a joy that is inherent in giving that only the generous know. It's hard to describe. I mean, I think, I think people try to circumvent that or try to make it more palatable by promising things that you just really don't promise. But the, the knowledge to know of it is better to give than to receive. Lord God, bless every gift as you bless every giver. Multiply it for your work, not just here in Algoda, Gona, but around the world. Bless our missionaries, Lord God, as they look to go back to the areas they, lo they are longing to go. Lord God, bless them, Lord God, with favor to be able to get back into those countries and to do the work that you've assigned them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed uh, my wife is not here today. Um, the reason for that is uh, she... Um, 
volunteers with an organization that literally saves little girls and little boys out of uh, modern day slavery. Um, we have young kids in the audience, so I'm not going to go into exactly what that is. Um, but it's it's absolutely horrific. They they save these little boys, little girls uh, in Cambodia and Indonesia, and they make these Selah houses. Selah is a word in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, that we really don't have a translation for. That's why we have Selah. And what it basically means to stop and consider. And uh, these Selah houses, they they rescue these little girls and little boys. They preach to them the gospel. And I've, I've gotten the I've had the pleasure of getting to at least be on these live stream when these when these kids are praising and worshiping God. And it is it is such a sweet moment that God is pleased with. So she's at a retreat for that. Uh, she sends her regards. Um, Pastor Curtis, Pastor Alyssa, I didn't have, even tell you guys about this, but I'll have you guys come up to the uh, um, lectern at this time. Um, tonight, they have their official credentialing service at our, at the, um, at the Iowa Ministry Network in Des Moines. Pretty much right after service, they're probably going to take right on off. So if you have kids who are going to Children's Church today, if you want to, you know, be prompt in, in picking them up, that would be terrific. Um, what I'd like to do right now is I would like to pray over them. Um, board members, if you'd come up to the uh, platform at this point. Once again, I have not um, told anybody anything this morning, just where I'm feeling where God is leading here. And um, those of you who don't know, Pastor Alyssa and Pastor Curtis, they've been called to the mission field as well, and they've been very busy. You may not have seen them many weeks. You may not in the future so much because they are going around raising support for the mission that God has called them to. Tonight really isn't much, isn't doing anything other than confirming the call of God on their lives. Lord God, I just pray over Pastor Curtis and Pastor Alyssa. You've called them not today, well, you have called them today, yes, and every day. But you called them a long time ago, and we recognize the calling in their life. Lord, as the elders and leadership of the Assemblies of God tonight will be praying over them, laying their hands on them, and conferring on them the mantle of ordination, we recognize in that as the church body, as their church. Lord God, as we did when they stepped up to be children's ministers and when they were first called in missionaries, we released them again, Lord God, into your service. Service we, of course, benefit from, but one day we'll have to say goodbye and allow that blessing to go overseas to Botswana or wherever their feet may land. Father, anoint them for this work. We pray a blessing on them, favor, Lord God, as a request partners in ministry across Iowa and across the nation. Bless them in this, Lord God, as they, uh, as they set up their booth at Network Council. Give them favor with the pastors who will be meeting with them to be able to set up times to at least talk, if not to gain support. Bless them now, Lord God, and we pray a special blessing and anointing over them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 And with that, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss the kids to Children's Church.
Today, Dennis Carney will be reading the scripture for us. The scripture reading for today is from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. For Samuel, sorry. Verse 10. For Samuel, not Isaiah. For Samuel. Thank you. I'm sorry, sorry. yeah, for Samuel. I, I can't even read my own writing here. I, it looks like Isaiah, but it's for Samuel. First Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, and then also from the New Testament, Galatians 5, chapter 5, verses 16 through 23. In First Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him to that that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of that robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of the war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displaced him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And now I will read from Galatians Chapter 5, verse 16 through 23. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things of these like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the reading of the Holy Word of God. not always easy to see, but that doesn't mean I'm not always around. I'm around every corner. I'm at your home. I'll be at your work. I'm even at your church. But you don't have to look for me because I'll find you. I am sin. What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of the God not revered, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. This is sin. That's from Pastor John Piper. We've been doing this series on the seven deadly sins. You know, in our day and age, it's not very popular to talk about sin. It's not popular to preach on sin. But you know, as believers, we should be eagerly desiring to see the ways that we can be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. To apart from sin, to be more like him. Um, so far, I've preached on wrath and greed. But what, are the, but what are these deadly sins? They're not so much actions as they are the thoughts and intentions of our sinful nature. You know, when we talk about sin, sometimes we like to try to separate sin from anything that seems bad. We call them mistakes. We call them psychosis or maladaptive um, attitudes. But sin is in our very nature. It, is the, it used to be the thought, thoughts and intentions of our heart. But God has given us a new heart. But we still have this sinful nature that sticks around. Our principal scripture comes for this whole series, comes from Galatians chapter 5, about the works of the works of the acts of the sinful nature. It says that they are obvious. This is not a popular idea because we want to try to struggle with what is the right thing to do here? We know what the right thing is. Romans 1.18 says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We know what is right and we don't do it because we give our excuses. Well, it wouldn't be wise. I can't do it that way. I mean, I might get fired. My family member won't speak to me. We, we know what is wrong and we say things like, I don't have a choice. That's one of my favorite things to hear in the, in, in the counseling sessions when somebody's like, I don't think I have a choice here. Like you have a choice, you just made your choice and you want to feel better about it. And that's unfortunate, right? We do that quite often when we say we don't have a choice. We'll say, Well, I can't afford to do that. You mean greed is more important to the more important to you than to obey God? Well, I wouldn't put it like that, right? No, I just can't afford to do it this time. So I gotta cheat on my taxes. I gotta live together with that person, even though we live just fine separately and we're not married. They know if they said that it would they, they, or another excuse we have, that person at work, they knew if they said that, that I'd fly off the handle, I'd get angry, and I got fired, but it's their fault. 
One act of the flesh we're going to explore today is the green-eyed monster itself. Let's do our next video. Hey guys, I got you each a gift. No way, Jesus, why? Awesome. Well, I just love you guys, so I wanted to get you something. <laughs> so nice. Laura, you first. Oh, this is so exciting. Oh, will you look at this, a little eight-ounce can of Coke? This is perfect for me. I looked everywhere to find a gift for you, and this just seemed to fit. I love it. Drew? Yeah, your turn. All right. <laughs> no way, Jesus. Seriously? Oh, yeah. 20 ounces of Coke? Yeah, baby. Woo! This is awesome. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much. You're welcome. Laura, we got to go show Richard our gifts. Come on. Okay. Hey, Laura? Is there a problem? No. I mean, well... Yeah, kind of, you know, it's just that every time you give people gifts, you always give everyone else more than you give me. What do you mean? I mean, like, I open my gift and, oh, cute, eight ounces, and then Drew opens his gift and, hello, 20 ounces. Oh, I know what you mean. Well, that gift is for Drew. Well, that's what I want. Uh, go get it for me. Okay, if that's what you want. Yeah. I got a liter. I know it's one liter of God's sweet goodness. Jesus gave it to me. He did? Yes. Okay, you know what? You're going to meet somebody with a bigger bottle, and you are going to be so mad. Laura, check it out. I got an upgrade. Coke 3.0. That is awesome. I know. Well, isn't that just great? Yeah. Hey, Jesus, you rock. Yeah. Thanks, what Drew. What is wrong with you? Why are you holding back your best from me? I gave you my best. Don't you see what's happening here? You're letting everyone else's gifts steal your joy. Uh, no, Jesus, you are stealing my joy by giving everyone else more than you give me. Laura, I picked this gift out for you. That's what I wanted you to see. I don't care. Until you can look past this, all you're going to see is a can of Coke. Envy. Envy is kind of like greed because you want what you don't have. But while greed is looking for more and more and never finding, envy is looking for what others have. It is what, it is what Thomas Aquinas said, the sorrow at another's good. It contains pride, wrath, greed, gluttony, and so much more in this one sin in fact, the concept of envy and jealousy are so linked that I'll be using them interchangeably today. This is one sermon, you know, I look forward to preaching every sermon, but this is one sermon that I was kind of like, I knew it was coming up, and I'm like, I'm not a big fan. I mean, like, it, it, it obviously hits, but it also, it's, it's incredibly dark. I was preaching this to teenagers one time, and one of these, one of the girls in my youth group, she said, I hope there's some jokes in here because this is really dark. And I'm like, it is really dark. But there's not much we can do about that. What does the Bible say about envy? 1 Corinthians 13. 13, the love chapter, right? Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. James 3.14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Proverbs 14.30, I think, says it really, really well. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. 
Proverbs 23, 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Amen? It's funny the things that we envy. If we had to live that person's life, we probably wouldn't envy it so much. Oz Guinness said this about envy. Traditionally, envy has been regarded as the second worst and the second most prevalent of the seven deadly sins. Like pride, it is a sin of the spirit, not of the flesh, and thus a cold and highly respectable sin. In contrast to the warmth and openly, the warm and openly disreputable sins of the flesh, such as gluttony, its uniqueness lies in the fact that it is the one vice that its perpetrators never enjoy and rarely confess. There's a problem with envy in our culture, in our lives, in churches, in everywhere, but we rarely confess it because it doesn't make us feel good. And it never makes us feel good. I mean, that's the, you know, I talked about anger being the cocaine and heroin of the devil because when you're, when you feel like you're righteously angry, it feels good. It's wrong, but it feels good. Envy never feels good and it's rarely confessed. Dwight L. Moody once time, one time told a parable of an eagle being envious of another eagle. The other eagle could fly higher, fly faster. It had more beautiful wings. So he found this first eagle found a hunter with his bow, and he told him, hey, can you shoot down that eagle up there? I'm tired of his smug face. And the hunter said, well, you know, I'd like to, but I have no feathers for my arrows. So the eagle plucked out one of his feathers and gave it to the hunter. He fixed it to the arrow, shot the arrow up. It couldn't reach this eagle. So the first eagle, he gives him another feather and another feather. Pretty soon, he has no more feathers to fly, and the hunter decides, well, I'm just going to walk over, pick up this guy, and then kill him and eat him. Moody's point being that envy, um, if you are envious of others, the one you will hurt the most by your actions will be yourself. Envy is deadly. It kills happiness. You can have the corner office with the view and the promotion, but if Janet, who started after you, has a better office, makes $5 more, then all of a sudden your joy and happiness with it is a little, little diminished. It kills whatever joy you might look to have. Envy kills relationships. It causes you to hate the person you once called friend, neighbor, brother, sister, mom, and dad. I think envy among siblings is probably one of the greatest areas we see envy. Well, mom always liked you best. Well, you are always the smart one. You are always the handsome or strong one. And I had nothing. Meanwhile, the other siblings saying, well, you were dad's favorite. And you had all these other gifts. You were the artsy one. Everyone always looked up to you. You were the valedictorian. You might see how seeds of bitterness spring up all around envy. It also literally drives people to kill each other. Look at the story we just read today from Samuel. King Saul, I'll get to this in a bit here, but he loved David like a son. And because of a little song, he's like, I'm going to pin him to the wall. Oh, it's, it's, it's deadly. It breaks relationships. It also literally drives people to kill each other. Sarah Cobb was a 16-year-old when she helped to murder a teenage girl with her boyfriend, 17-year-old Corey Gregory. According to court documents, a new girl had arrived at the school. This new girl made the, made the fatal mistake of flirting with her boyfriend. Sarah became upset and began to plan the murder of this young woman with her boyfriend and is now currently 
staying the rest of her life in a penitentiary. But let's go much wider than that. The horrors of the 20th century, probably none could be worse than what happened with USSR communism of the Soviet Union. We know about Hitler, we know about the death camps, but they pale in comparison to what happened all over Europe following World War II. And how could this happen? Well, the Soviet Union, they would send people into areas like the Ukraine, for instance. They'd go to towns, big or small, and they would would go to the bars. And they would find many men who had served in the armed forces who were broke, who were damaged, who were going through PTSD, and they were just drinking their lives away. And they'd tell them, hey, you know Bill up up on the hill who has that big farm? He's stealing from you, and that's why you haven't made anything of your life. They'd get a mob, they'd go take Bill, and they'd either put him in a gulag, or they'd just kill him. Now Bill has this big farm, but nobody knows how to farm. And the Ukraine, one year, well over a million people died of starvation. Envy is deadly. When we look at the story of King Saul, we find the cause of envy. Two is the caricature. Um, I would use perversion, but caricature caricature starts with C. Um, And we're going to look at the cure as well. The cause of envy. In Oz Guinness' book, The Call, he says, Envy enters when seeing someone else's happiness or success. We see ourselves called into question. Then out of the hurt of our wounded self-esteem, we seek to bring the other person down to our level by word or deed. They belittle us by their success. We feel we should bring them down to their deserved level. Envy helps us that envy helps us feel that they should be at. Full-blown envy, in short, is dejection plus disparagement plus destruction. And isn't that something? That is the thing of envy. It makes us call into question our own self-worth. Well, what am I compared to this other person? Dorothy Sayer says, Envy begins by asking plausibly, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? And it ends demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? Our culture is saturated with envy. We always have the mythical rich person. Everybody has their own version of that. Or the person who's living the good life. And we feel dejected. Why should they enjoy this when other people are in want? Or me, myself, I'm not living up to what I think I should. In the scripture, in the scripture that Dennis read today, this morning, we are in the middle of Saul's self-destruction. The kingdom has been spiritually taken from him, and he is ready to kill David. Why? Because of envy. It wasn't always like this. Funny enough, Saul's story comes out of envy. The people of Israel, they saw the kingdoms around them and they thought, well, why can't we have a king like all these other nations? Now, mind you, they are called into the land to displace those nations. And they're like, why shouldn't we just be like them? So they reject God as their king and they demand a king. God tells them, okay, I'll give you a king, but know this, he'll tax you. He'll take your sons and have them killed. He'll take your daughters for his servants. And they're like, that that sounds great. Let's have a king. So Saul, Saul was of the least tribe. He was least in the least tribe. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. At the end of Judges, Benjamin, um, the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. 
And Saul is the least in that tribe, and God calls him to be king. So he should be grateful. He should be excited. Even though he messed up, he should realize he has so much more than he deserves. He should repent and bow out gracefully when he lost God's approval. But now David, a man he will call, quote, my son, is finding success after success. The women are singing David's praise, not Saul's. David sees perhaps the praises he used to have being directed at David. Mind you, David is doing everything Paul is, Saul has asked him to do. We envy those most like us. We use the term of envy pretty loosely. Like I could tell you today, I envy Henry Cavill. And you might giggle or laugh because you know I'm not serious. I don't know Henry Cavill, by the way. He plays Superman. Um, he was in one of my favorite movies, The Count of Monte Cristo. And he has an incredible Warhammer 40K um, collection that I, that I can't ever imagine having. Um, but you know, if I say I envy him, it doesn't really mean much. But if I tell you about this kid who was in high school with me, um, his dad was a professor at the local Bible college. He was only in my high school for a year and a half or so. And we became fast friends. We became very close friends. But he was taller, had longer hair. And believe it or not, when I was in high school, that was a thing for me. I know it's hard to know now. But in high school, I had hair down my back. He had longer hair than me. He was taller than me. He knew more Bible than me. He sang better than me. He had better grades than me. And everything that I cared about, he was better in. You know, I couldn't care less that my friend Brett was better than me at basketball because I didn't play basketball. But this guy had the gall to know the Bible better than me and to know more about the Constitution than me, things that I thought I was good at, but he was better. So to be honest, envy broke that friendship. We were close friends, and today I honestly can't even remember his name. Saul, going back to Saul and David. Saul loved David. In 1 Samuel 26, David and his men are being hunted by Saul. It's after the incident that we just read. Like deer in the woods. The Lord gave Saul into David's hands, not once, but twice. And one of these times, David, he's in the camp, and he, he could just kill Saul in his sleep. He wakes everybody up, and he tells Saul's guards that they deserve to die because they didn't protect their king, the king that was trying to kill David. And in verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, it is, my lord, the king. Envy destroys relationships. If you can't rejoice with a friend who rejoices, then you're really not a friend. Amen. No, it's really what my generation called frenemies. You know, you are happy or you're, 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 you're friendly together, but as soon as they're gone, you're talking trash about them, right? You're trying to devalue them in the estimation of everybody else in your life. Cain would not abide his brother being honored while he sat in his dishonored. Jacob had enough of his, this hairy brother being praised as the firstborn. And Saul heard a song that praised David at his expense. In uh, the movie, The Story of David from 1976, somebody last, last week told me that they didn't get all my movie references, and I'd be like, I'd be really impressed if you did. Um, but anyway, in the movie, they, they, they put this to a, to a tune. The reason I say that is because my, my, my movie um, 
knowledge it goes very wide. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to be an amalgamation of my of my siblings, my wife, and like lifelong friends to get probably a quarter of my movie references. But anyway, in this movie, they put this uh, they put the song to music, and it's Saul, Saul has killed his slain his thousand, David, David his tens of thousands. Then everyone starts singing, and you're like, I can kind of understand where this gets under somebody's nerves. <laughs> Saul cannot abide this, and he looks to kill David because of it. Envy destroys relationships. Pastor Tim Holt has six signs of envy. See if this fits you. If any of these fit you, that is that time where you see in the back of your head, you know, danger, Will Robinson, danger. Withdrawal and depression. Life is unfair. I'm not going to participate or try my best anymore. You find that in yourself. Well, I'm not even going to try. Why should I even try when somebody else is going to be better than me at this? It is a pessimistic attitude. Those who are jealous and envious tend to be negative about most things. They find it easier to show sympathy and weep with those who weep than to exhibit joy and rejoice with those who rejoice. They seem, they seem solemn, they seem pious because they can weep with those who weep. But of course you can, because then you're the one helping them, right? You can't be helped by anybody else. You can never be the, you can never be the student you always want to be the teacher. If somebody else is the teacher, then why should they be the teacher and not you? Fault finding. They invest, they invest reasons for their lack, um, their lack and others' gain in order to just, justify the emptiness of their own heart and life. Blaming everyone else because you are not where you should be. I think we see this so much in our culture today, but we've been seeing it for so long. People, they didn't, you know, I could have been a contender. I could have been this. I could, I could, I could. You still can be a lot of things. Nobody here is dead. Good. Um, so your story is not written yet. You are still writing it. You can be whatever God has called you to be. He's given you the anointing. He's given you the power to do so. But if, you have, if, but if you have a root of enviness in your heart, you'll make all the excuses in the world. Self-pity is number four. People who tell you how miserable they are tend to be full of envy. They look for happiness in getting the next thing they think will fully satisfy them. Number five, unthankfulness. Even when they do get those things, it's never good enough or sufficient. Number six, gossiping and backbiting. I think... Enviness, if that is the root, if that's the intention of the heart, it expresses its way mainly through gossip. Of course, because the person's not there to defend themselves. You can say whatever you want. The other person feeds in, and all of a sudden, before you know, you are saying the most awful things about somebody you said was a friend. That is how envy expresses itself, through gossiping and backbiting. So what is the cause of envy? In the scripture we just read right here, it's our offended self-worth. We believe that we are owed, not better than what we have, but better than that other person because they have more coke than us, right? You know, if I gave everybody here $500, which I am not going to do, if I did, but I gave Ro right here, I gave them all a thousand, would that make you think, oh, or would you think, well, I got 500 though, right, that I didn't have. It's offended self-worth. Not, 
Not that we have more, we don't, we deserve better, but we deserve better than that person. We need to have the pecking order and where we're at. Saul deserves the songs, not David. Saul literally thought that becoming king, all you need is first the song and then the kingdom. So what is the caricature? What is the perversion of envy? Could there be any noble thing like envy to be, to be perverted into envy? Well, 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I feel divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Virgin to Christ. It is godly jealousy. It is a lot like jealousy, and it's just a change in the direction of one's concern. It's a jealousy, but instead of the concern being directed to ourselves, it's directed toward God. It looks for the best for that person. As your pastor, I have a divine jealousy for you too. God has put me into a position in your life to present you as a pure virgin to one husband who is Christ. For you to wander and become lukewarm, it stirs in me a godly jealousy. I look at you and I said, I promised you to Christ, but you are looking towards others. So it's no longer about me, right? It's not about my kingdom. It's about Christ's kingdom, and I am jealous for it. I, my concern is for God's glory and not my own. We just finished on, in Sunday morning um, on our uh, Sunday school on the book of Galatians. Book of Galatians was the first entire book that I memorized. I was a teenager. And I would be in, the, I'd be in my uh, church, and I'd, be, and I'd be memorizing it. In order to memorize scripture, you repeat it to yourself over and over and over. And I got to a couple phrases that reduced me to tears. Because he said, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? I could feel God's heart in that. In my own life, when I would wander, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? How about this? He tells them, become like me, for I have become like you. There's the direct meaning of that, but then there's the underlining meaning, which Christ has become like us so that we might become like him. A godly jealousy looks for our good and his glory to the exception of all else. Saul's story would have been much different if he had a godly jealousy. If he was concerned about God's kingdom and not his own, even though he had messed up terribly, had the kingdom ripped from his hands, if he would have repented, worked with God, mentored David to be the next king, he would have lived for quite a lot longer of a time. He would have had so much joy in his life that his adopted son, his son in spirit, is the king now too. And that there's a God who saves and redeems even people who mess up as bad as he does. Instead, he has an earthly envy. And, one, and, it, and it takes from him everything. The books of First and Second Samuel has been called in the past a tale of three kings. Truly, it's a tale of four kings. If you've missed the fourth king, I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. The obvious ones are King Saul, King David, and King Absalom. But there's a king at the start of the book of Samuel, and that is the Lord. They reject him as king. Dysfunction follows after. The books of First and Second Samuel, once again, tale of four kings. King Saul, ripped apart by the fear of men, of jealousy and envy, King Absalom, the son of David, who envied his father and gossiped about him and hunted him like Saul did before. 
It's interesting parallels we see between Saul and Absalom. Saul is afraid of losing what he doesn't even really have, right? Because the kingdom's been torn from him. So he's so afraid of losing that he will destroy everything in his life. He will have priests murdered. That's how far he goes because of his envy and jealousy. He is so insecure, and this is the kind of person you don't want to work for, right? They always have to stamp you down. You do anything good, they have to criticize it. They have to tear it apart because they're not about lifting you up. They don't want to develop you and make you into something that could rival them because now you're going to attack myself for it. Absalom, on the other hand, his father, David, he gossips about him. He stays outside the court, tells people, if I was king, I would give you justice. And he lusts after his father's everything. And he, like Saul, hunts David in the wilderness, his own son. But David, David was not a perfect man. I was thinking about this this morning. In the books of First and Second Samuel, you can find all seven of the deadly sins in abundance. Some of them in David himself. But David was a humble king. David wasn't perfect king, but he was a king who had a godly jealousy, who longed for God's kingdom to be established in righteousness. When he said, one thing I ask for the Lord, and that I would seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He wanted to be the one who built the temple. And when, and when God told him no, because there was blood on his hands, he didn't go ahead and do it anyway. And when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he repents. They may not seem like much, right? Because he's obviously in the wrong. There's a lot of problems. The truth is out. There are other kings of Judah and Israel who kill the prophets when they confront them. Instead, David, and he has it. I mean, these are official documents, First and Second Samuel. So he lets the whole kingdom know about his dirty deeds. And you know why? Because he has a godly humility. Because he is not jealous, he is not envious, he does not have an earthly, jeal- uh, earthly jealousy, an earthly envy, but he has a godly jealousy. There will be another king. In the book of Kings, you have righteous kings and you have unrighteous kings. If they're an unrighteous king, it says they walked in the ways of their father, whoever was behind them. But if they were a righteous king, it says they would walk in the ways of their father, David, as leaders, and we should all be leaders in some way, shape, or form. You should, look into the, you should look to walk in the ways of your father God and your father David. Josiah was one of these kings. There would be other righteous kings of Judah. They would get rid of so many of the altars, so many of the idols, but they would not touch the high places. Makes me think of the excuses we use, right? We'll get rid of so much, but I got I to gotta keep this right here. I got to keep this right here. Because if I, if I trust God in here, what will he do? Will he make me a monk? Will he make me do all these things? Will he make me sell everything and give it to the poor? And what we're saying is, um, as R.W. again said, we are, we, are, we are hesitant to preach thy will be done because we are secretly suspicious of the Father's intentions towards us. Josiah was, had a divine jealousy because he took the high places and he shattered them. He ripped them down. Leaders who are jealous and envious are the worst. Ones who have a godly jealousy, who do not allow high places, they walk in the ways of their father, David. So what about the cure? John chapter 3, verses 29 and 23. For the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must decrease, but I, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is John the Baptist. Jesus' earthly ministry is starting to go very well. And people who used to hear, come and hear John the Baptist, were hearing Jesus. And people were wondering, it's like, don't you, don't you feel like weird about that? I mean, now your cousin's the man. You used to be the man. And he rejoices at it. He rejoices at it because he has a godly humility. He has the perspective of that I must decrease so that Christ may increase. Humility is often misunderstood concept. Many think in order to be humble, you have to go around like Eeyore or something. You know, always the little face, well, at least it's not raining or something like that. No, look at John the Baptist. He was humble, but he was also bold. Look at Moses, both humble and bold. Why? Because they were secure in who they were. John knew that for Christ to be great doesn't mean he's nothing because he is in Christ. He, he finds decreasing not to, be of any, not to be of any value because he already knows what his worth is. And a man or woman who knows their worth is dangerous. A man or woman who knows their worth in Jesus Christ is dangerous because they can't be bought, they cannot be sold, they cannot be, they, they cannot be come against in any significant way that will, that will hurt them because they know who they are in Jesus Christ, so you can call them whatever you want. I think sometimes we think, you know, when we think about persecution happening, we think people are going to call us things, all, all kinds of evil, like Jesus freak or Bible thumper. He said all kinds of evil for my sake. So they're going to say other things about us, right? Not related to that, that they have no evidence for. You know, in our day and age, it's, I mean, pick racist, homo, homophobe, um, sexist, misogynist. I mean, just pick them. In Paul's day, here's interesting enough, what they would call Christians was atheists. They'd call them ghouls, vampires. I could go on and on and on, but a person who knows their worth in Christ will not hate the people who hate them. They can love their enemies. They gain worth in their relationship with God. Godly humility takes its self-worth, not from the opinions of others, not in fame or riches or notoriety or in anything else. It knows at the center of human existence there is a cross. It finds its confidence and worth in Christ and him alone. This was not given by the world, so the world cannot take it away. A person who has godly humility tests their own actions without comparing them to anyone else. Galatians 6.4 tells us to test our own actions, and then we can take pride in ourselves without comparing ourselves to anyone else. It kills envy. I am confident in Christ who cares about anything else, and I can see his hand on me. It is rejoicing with those who rejoice. Can you genuinely be happy when those around you succeed in ways that are important to you? It has been said that greatness is never appreciated in youth, called pride in middle age, dismissed in old age, reconsidered in death, because we cannot tolerate greatness in our mess. We do all we can to destroy it, but not you, dear one. You call out greatness in others. You call out greatness in others. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning about true leadership calls out greatness in others. It nurtures it. 
It looks at those things that I've been entrusted in my life with a son or daughter of Jesus Christ himself. Parents, God has given you the most significant role in society to raise up children in the fear and admonition of God, and he's given it to no one else. I think about as your pastor that God has entrusted me with you with entrusted me with you as his sons and daughters. I was speaking with another pastor friend this week, and um, was just talking about certain pastoring styles, I should say, that are brutal and terrible. And I was like, I, I don't understand that, because when I think about how God has entrusted me with his children, I can't think about it long. It's it's overwhelming. I praise God for you. C.H. Spurgeon said, The cure for envy lies in living under a constant sense of the divine presence. Worshiping God and communing with him all day long, however long the day may seem. True religion lifts the soul into a higher region where the judgment becomes more clear and the desires are more elevated. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The fear of God casts out the envy of men. Worship team, would you come up at this point? Jesus said if anybody would follow him, they must take up their cross and follow him. Another section, it says to take up our cross daily and follow him. To constantly put to death the things that are earthly in us. What it means to be a living sacrifice, what it means to worship We can take these things and we can nail envy to the cross and watch it die. For it was nailed there with him and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So in conclusion, how do we defeat envy in our life? Well, here's the first thing we need to start admitting when we start start feeling envy. Not to cover it up with nice sounding words, but to really realize it in us. Is there a relationship in our life that has a lot of stress in it? There may be many reasons for that, but maybe one of them is envy. Maybe you look at them and you say, they do not deserve to have what they have. You have to look inside yourself. Search me, O God. Find any unclean thing. Decide to offer that up to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Brothers, I offer you, uh, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, This is your spiritual, in some translations, your acceptable act of worship. To be a living sacrifice. That is what this whole series is about. So that your joy may be complete. This is for your joy. This is not just so I can talk about sin for seven weeks. This is that your joy may be complete. That you may cast off everything that hinders. Get more of heaven so that you do not envy the things of earth. We end every service with worship. We do that on purpose. We do that because in those times of worship, when we are focusing on God, we care about the things of this world less. What I mean, I don't mean the sins of this world, the problems in this world. We just care about those things that would take away our affection for God less. And we realize the best thing in life, in eternity, is to know him as we are fully known. So would you please stand with me, or you can stay seated As we sing this last song of worship, I'll end with a benediction. For during this whole series, we need to ask ourselves, we need to ask God, search me and find me. Is there any unclean thing? This week, it's envy. What are those relationships in my life that are tense? Maybe it's because of envy. 
Is there somebody at work that I'm envying? Or can I put that aside and really rejoice with those who rejoice? And you will have greater freedom than you could ever have before. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy
receive the blessing of the Lord today. Today's blessing comes from Romans chapter 11, verses 30, 33 and 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Bless us this day, Lord. Holy Spirit, search us and find within us, Lord God, any root of bitterness, any bit of envy, that may we present it before the throne of God as yet another sacrifice to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, worship team.